the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, here on Abounding Grace, we are exploring circumcision and baptism and just exactly what Paul is laying out here in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, next. Apostle Paul gives us a great example of righteousness that is credited to us, an alien righteousness that's not our own. He does so in the life of Abraham, and he makes the point that Abraham was credited as righteous before he was circumcised. So what does all this mean for us today? Pastor Gary Wagner continues exploring chapter 4 with a message called Credited Righteousness and Baptism. Here's Pastor Gary with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Credited righteousness and baptism. Remember what Paul has been doing in the last part of the third and the fourth chapter. He has particularly in the fourth chapter been using Old Testament scripture to substantiate and support his gospel of justification by faith in Christ alone. And he has also been talking about the nature of saving faith. What is saving faith? What does it look like? And he gives two great examples of what it means to believe in Jesus, and both of them are Old Testament characters. One is Abraham, and one is David. We talked about Abraham last week, and we will talk about David somewhat today. Then the third thing he is doing is showing us the total antithesis between a system of salvation by works and the system of salvation by faith. They are total opposites. Everything about them is different. The idea that we are justified by obedience to the law of God And the idea that we are justified by faith in Christ alone are worlds apart. Everything about obedience and works points to yourself and what you do. Everything about faith points away from yourself and what God does and what you receive solely by faith. Last week we saw Paul discuss Abraham who is the central character of the Jewish religion. Yet he trusted and believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the instrument by which he was accepted with God was not his character, it was not his behavior, it was his own faith in Christ. And now we come to David in verses 4 through 8, and I would like to read those to you once again, Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. 
Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, there are some very important phrases here that we need to notice and understand. Whom does God justify according to our text? What is the description here of the person that God justifies? Now notice, justification is a legal decision on the part of God. He declares a person not guilty and forgives him of his sins and adopts him into his family on the basis of the work of Christ and not because of anything the sinner has done, which is received through faith. But notice what it says about that person. In verses 4 and 5 it says, Now to one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So we see the first thing here, Concerning the person that God justifies is he is a person who doesn't work, but who believes in Jesus. Now, that's not to say that he is lazy. That's not to say that God forgives everyone who is lazy and doesn't work. Otherwise, there would be millions upon millions of people in this country who would be saved. The context here is works versus faith. And it is not to say that there is absolutely no role for good works in the Christian life. We all know that obedience to God and a life of of good works are evidence of true faith. But what he is saying here is, a person who is justified is the person who quits working to win God's favor. He is someone who has totally given up trying to win points with God, of trying to merit anything from God, or trying to earn favor with God like he was buying it in some way, because he knows he's not good enough to do such a thing. So the person who is forgiven by God and accepted into his family is the person who has no part in a system of trying to get right with God by good things that he does. Rather, he is justified by believing. And remember, believing has three elements to it. Believing implies, first of all, that he has some understanding of the gospel and what it teaches. And second, that he agrees with the gospel and believes what the Bible says about himself and about Jesus is true. And thirdly, the element of trust. He trusts himself to Christ. He trusts Christ to be to him what the Bible says Christ is 
in fact. Then notice what else it says in verse 5, describing the person that God justifies. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. God justifies ungodly people. Now that's a death blow to the whole idea of justification by godliness or by obedience to God. God doesn't justify godly people. He justifies ungodly people. People that didn't claim to have any righteousness in and of themselves. People who know they can't do anything even to prepare themselves to be accepted with God. They are ungodly, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except for God's sovereign mercy. Those are the people whom God justifies. Whenever any godly person, however ungodly that person may be, quits working for his salvation and starts believing in Christ alone, that person can be certain of the forgiveness of the sins and adoption into the family of God. Now, the second question I want to ask from those early verses and give the answer to is who is the object of justification or justifying faith? Because it is the object of faith that gives faith its strength and its effectiveness. I have said this several times. Jesus said, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, that is all you need. Why? Because it is not the size of faith that is the important thing. It is the object upon which your faith rests. You can have faith in Buddha the size of a watermelon... And it will get you nowhere. But you can have faith in Christ the size of a mustard seed. And that is saving faith. Saving faith and its effectiveness comes not from the size of the faith. But from the object upon which your faith rests. So, what is the object upon which saving faith rests? If it is real saving faith. Well, we have seen one answer all through chapter 3. And it is, of course, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the person who believes in Jesus, who believes what Jesus says about Jesus is true, and rests upon Christ to be that for him. But notice what our text says, so as to clear away any, any misunderstandings here. In verse 5 it says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Now, who is he talking about? Who justifies the ungodly? That's talking about God the Father. God the Father is the one who justifies. God the Father is the judge that declares us not guilty on the basis of the finished work of Christ. So what we see here is, not only is Christ the Son of God incarnate the object of saving faith, but also God the Father, the one who does the justifying, is the object of saving faith. So saving faith rests upon the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now that is important. 
Because when we say we are justified by faith in Christ alone, we don't mean in Christ over against faith in God who raises the dead and faith in God who justifies, etc. That is not the intent of the sola fide phrase. That is, we don't believe in only Jesus and no other person in the Godhead but Jesus to be saved. So here, in this particular text, you see that God the Father, the one who justifies the ungodly, is the object of our faith. And in Romans 3.26, Jesus is the object. So you see, saving faith is an intelligent faith. Saving faith understands something about the Trinity. A person becomes a Christian because he has no Savior but Jesus, and he knows why he needs Jesus as his Savior. He knows about his own sin. He knows about, Jesus, he knows about who Jesus is and what his saving work involves. But he is also someone who knows it is God the Father that justifies us on the basis of what Christ has done in us. That is, he has some understanding of the Trinity, and he believes in the Trinity. Now, no one understands the Trinity completely. No one understands everything there is to know about the Trinity because of the infinity of God. Nevertheless, that is why the church throughout history has said that faith in the Trinity is essential to salvation, that someone cannot really call himself a Christian who does not believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, there is another question we can ask of our text, and it will also answer, and that is, can God justify the ungodly and he himself remain just? Now, first of all, what is justification again? It is when God declares a person righteous and accepts him into his family. He declares that person in full conformity with the law of God, no longer liable to God's judgment. There is no more condemnation over him. He is accepted into God's family as his own child through faith in Christ. Now, how can God do that? In other words, how can God declare us to be something we are not and he knows we're not? How can God declare us righteous and accept us on that basis when he knows good and well that we are not righteous? We are sinners. Does God play word games? Is this as the Roman Catholic Church describes it, legal fiction? That God just makes something up? No. The way God can remain just and still justify the ungodly is by imputation. And that is the key word in our text. It is used several times in these middle verses of Romans 4. In our passage, instead of imputation, though, the word is reckoned, which is the same word in Greek. Look at all the various places it is used. Verse 3. For what does the scripture say? 
Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 5. But it's the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not reckon or take into account. Verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned unto Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10. How then was it reckoned? And is used also in verses 22 and 23. So this thing of imputing or reckoning is a key word in this entire text. This whole idea of imputing or reckoning. Now, what does the word impute or reckon mean? It means to credit something to someone's account. To put something into someone else's account. You have a debt. And you can't pay that debt. So someone pays the debt and he credits his money to your account, pays your debt for you, just as if you paid it yourself. That is imputing, which means to make up for someone else's deficiency, at least monetarily in this case, but with us, our sins. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. The one thing God demanded of Abraham, righteousness was reckoned to him as if he had produced it himself. But it was credited to his count by Christ. Now, there are a couple of other places in the Bible where impute is used. And the first is in the book of Philemon. The book is about a runaway slave. Paul speaks to Philemon, the slave master, about his runaway slave, Onesimus. And he says to Philemon about Onesimus, If he has defrauded you or owes you anything, charge it to my account, Paul's account. Impute it to me. I'll pay his bill. Now, that's imputation. If he owes you anything, charge it or put it to my account. So what happens in salvation is that God puts to our account the righteousness from the life of Christ And that he demands of us, which we cannot produce. And on the basis of that credited righteousness of Christ, God saves us. Also notice there in verses 7 and 8 that Paul quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and where sins have been severed. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will not take into account. Now, what is interesting about this is that Psalm 32, that Psalm 32 passage defines justification and imputation in a negative sense. It says that the man who is accepted with God is not the man whose own good works are credited to his account, but he is the man whose sins are not charged to his account. You see the negative sense there? 
So when you consider how it is used in the book of Philemon and in Psalm 32, you see that imputation has two sides to it. The laying of our sins to Christ's account, and that is why Christ died on the cross. Our sins were charged to his account as if he committed them himself, which he, as you know, did not. And then he suffered the punishment for them. And the other side is the placing of Christ's righteousness to our account, making up the deficit we owe God for our sins. There are also a couple of places in in 2 Corinthians, which are verses 19 and 21. Verses, I'm sorry, um, 2 Corinthians 19, 21. God was in great reconcile God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and he was committed to us the word of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us and we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There you see the heart of the gospel. There you see why God can declare a believer in Jesus to be righteous and accept him as his child throughout all eternity because of that great transaction in which Christ bears our sin. And they are charged to his account, and he bears them away. Then, Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, and his atoning death are credited to our account, making up whatever debt we owe God, and we are accepted on that basis. So to impute righteousness, to reckon righteousness, is the same same thing as to be justified by faith. Those are synonymous phrases. To be justified by faith and to have the righteousness of Christ credited to your account are synonymous phrases. God makes the guilt and the legal responsibilities of our sins really Christ's and punishes him for them. Then he makes the righteousness of Christ really ours and rewards us with everything Christ's perfect righteousness deserved. And that imputation is based upon the union we have with Christ, this intimate, mystical, vital, covenantal union that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, beloved, is the heart of justification. That is what so filled the heart of Martin Luther that caused him to be a great preacher of the Reformation. He understood, and I pray you understand, that God put our sins on Christ and put all of Christ's righteousness on us through faith alone. We had nothing. Christ had everything. And God imputes Christ's merits to our account, thereby cleansing any debt we had with God. God has declared that all claims of the law against us as believers has been satisfied and all charges against us dropped. There is, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those 
who are in Christ Jesus. The judge of eternity has declared us not guilty. Our eternal destiny rests purely on this unchangeable declaration of our great God. And that transaction is complete. It is over. The account is settled. Our status with God is settled forever and nothing will ever change it. We were in filthy rags. God finds us, then he clothes us with the white robes of Christ's purity. And now God sees that and nothing else. And we are accepted in the beloved. That is justification. That is imputation. That is how faith in Christ is reckoned to us as righteousness. And it is that irreversible declaration on the part of God that is the basis of our eternal security and the assurance of our salvation. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us, PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. 5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, May Christ be your abounding grace. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.